0: We are going to continue on now, as we do each week, by looking into the Word of God. Um, we're in Habakkuk chapter 3 today, and so I'd invite you, if, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, we are going to be looking at um, the, almost the last section of Habakkuk. We're in chapter 3. There's only three chapters, so we're nearing the end. It's our second to last sermon. And I want to begin this morning uh, by thinking about something that is um, troubling in marriage. Uh, Of course, our sermon uh, is all about, our sermon series is all about troubling questions from Habakkuk, uh, questions for God that he has that are really troubling him. But um, there's something about our text today that that makes me think of of how trouble can come into a marriage because there's lots of reasons where there can be difficulty in marriage. Uh, Of course, there's infidelity is is the biggest one, but there can be neglect, there can be a lack of love, a lack of effort. But one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked is uh, the role that doubt and mistrust can have in a marriage relationship. I heard the story once of a counselor telling about a couple that he was working with, and uh, the wife in this case was um, just an, distrustful of her husband. She really thought that he was having an affair on her, thought he was cheating on her. He, he wasn't. Uh, there's no evidence to say that he, that he was, but because of this um, this doubt that was in her heart, everything that her husband did, she would use it to kind of feed uh, this, uh, this fire of, of doubt that was raging inside her. So if he was late home from work, if he forgot to do something that he said, that he would do, if he was at all distant. she would all, all think, look, that's because he's, he's unfaithful to me. It, it tore their marriage apart, even though there wasn't actually any unfaithfulness. And, and it strikes me that the situation is really fairly similar for Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, has the sense that God has been very, very unfaithful. Uh, he's looking at the you know, the, the world around him. He's living in Judah and he's seeing what he thinks is evidence of God's inattentiveness, that he's uncaring, that he's not, not mindful, not active in the lives of his people. And so he questions God. These are the questions we've heard, we've heard him ask, right? God, are you going to sit idly by, by wickedness and evil is running rampant? God, when are you going to do something? God had a chance to respond and, and he said, I am doing something. I have a plan, and it, you just have to wait for it to unfold. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to judge the wickedness of my people. You're going you're to see the, the plan unfold, but you, you know, you have to wait for it. That's, that's what we saw last week. Well, today we get to the beginning of Habakkuk's final response, where he's had a chance to hear from God and really reflect on what God has said. And our key verse for this morning is, comes right at the end. It's verse 16, where Habakkuk says... Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so we see here in Habakkuk a, a very a distinct shift. Uh, at the beginning, he was, I mean, he was not waiting and he was not quiet. He was very loudly criticizing what God was doing or the fact that God, he thought God wasn't doing anything. But now, now he says, I'm going to wait patiently. I'm going to wait Quietly for God's plan to unfold. And, and the question that we should be asking is, well, well what happened? What, what made the big difference in Habakkuk's view of the situation? And it has everything to do with faith. That's really what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, how it is that Habakkuk went from a, you know, a, a mindset that was doubting God, just inherently distrustful of God, to then trusting God, having faith that things would in fact work out the way that he said they would. And for us, we're going to see, well, how can, how can that same shift happen in us? How can we go from perhaps a disposition or a frame of mind that's really uh, distrustful of God or doubting God or, or wondering, you know, God, when are you going to actually do something to help me? To go from that to uh, a disposition of heart that, that is very trusting of God, that has a faith that endures through the difficulties, through the waiting uh, to the end. So that's our focus how do we get from that shift from doubt to faith? And we're going to see in our text that there are really three things. Three things that grows Habakkuk's faith and that can grow our faith. So here's the first one. Faith grows when we see God for who he truly is. Uh, Right at the beginning of Habakkuk's response, it's actually a prayer. We have this. Here's verse 1 and 2. Uh, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shagoyanoth. Uh, that, that word is like a musical term. Uh, but then he starts in verse two. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years revive it, in the midst of the years make it known, in wrath, remember mercy. So this is a compelling beginning uh, because what we see in this uh, initial, you know, just first verbalization of his response, he's responding to God, he's heard everything from God, we see that he alludes to a shift that's happened within him. It's kind of, uh, it's in there. It's not exactly obvious, but we can see the distinction between him saying, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. So that's the sense of kind of his impression of God before. But now, Lord, uh, I fear you. The sense we get is that Habakkuk has grown his understanding of God from the point of hearing about God to now really knowing God. And the interesting thing is that that's the same kind of shift we see in Job. Uh, Job, very similar book. He also questions God, gets a response from God. Uh, but look at what Job says uh, near the end of his book, uh, verse 42 sorry, chapter 42, verse five. Job says of, to God, "I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you." And so again, you get that shift. Right? Both, both men believed in God, both men knew God, but there was still a shift after their interaction where they came from, in a sense, hearing about him to really seeing him. To really seeing him for who he truly was. And this isn't just um, a thing that happens with God. We have the expression, seeing is believing. And, and what it means is, look, there's some things that you can hear about it, but when you see them, man, then, then you really know. Uh, the, the thing that came to my mind is, um, I'm not sure if you've been watching... There's a new uh, special on Netflix, ESPN have done this thing where they're looking back at the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s of Jordan Pippen and and Dennis Rodman and uh, kind of telling the story there and in the very first episode, it was all about Michael Jordan, kind of his transition from uh, college player to uh, NBA rookie and the thing that I remember hearing again and again from the people who were sort of talking about him back then is everyone would say, look, you know, I'd heard about this guy, Michael Jordan. I heard he was a good player, but when I saw him, when I played against him, then I realized how amazing he really was. In fact, there was one sort of decisive game uh, where the Bulls were playing the Milwaukee Bucks, and uh, they were losing, they were going into the fourth quarter, and the Bulls had pretty much given up, because that's kind of what they did back then, but Jordan was like, no, we got a chance to win this game. Of course, they were playing against uh, the Bucks, who had apparently the the most amazing defensive player in the NBA at the time, Uh, his name was Moncrief. Uh, um, And he was, uh, I mean, they interviewed him about this game. And here's what he said. I thought this was interesting. He said, "Uh, I kind of thought I knew his potential, talking about Jordan, because I had played against the best players in the league so far, the Magics, the Birds, the Dr. J's, the Creams, great players. But all of a sudden, this rookie comes into the NBA. I watched how he moved on the court, and I thought, wow, this one is going to be scary. So you can see the difference. Moncrief, once he he actually played against him, once he saw his moves, once he experienced Jordan, then he knew, man, this this guy, he's the best player in the league. In fact, his whole team, within two weeks, realized he was the best player on their team, best player in the the league. Seeing was believing when it came to Michael Jordan. And it's the same with God, except exponentially more so. We can hear about God, and, and many times that's true of us. We have some sense of faith, we believe in him, We've read about him perhaps, but when we experience him, when we experience him, then we truly know him as he is and we're overwhelmed. Uh, Habakkuk gives us kind of this kind of a picture of God. Just the splendor, the radiance of God in the next few verses. Uh, Beginning in verse 3, he says this. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, raised, flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So so this is the pattern that we kind of see through the Bible. Every time someone comes into the presence of God, they are changed. Any of their doubts, any of their misgivings fade into the background, and they are overwhelmed by just the, the power and splendor of God, and their faith is galvanized. Just think of Moses when he encounters God in the burning bush. He, he goes in with no sense of calling, a lot of misgivings, that he would go and do anything for God, and yet when God calls him, after that moment he goes, he leads his, God's people of slavery. You think of uh, Saul on the road to Damascus and how when Jesus appears to him, and he just, he's, he's blinded at first by the light, but then his eyes are open and he comes to faith. You think of the day of Pentecost after Jesus had went to the cross, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, the disciples are fearful, they're kept behind closed doors and then the spirit of God descends on them, they encounter the living God and they go forth boldly proclaiming the gospel. That, that's what happens when we truly know God. When we see him as he is, we are changed, we, are, we come to the place of conviction and faith. And that's exactly what happened to Habakkuk. Uh, if you remember in chapter one, uh, he was pretty full of himself. I mean, he was, he was critical of God. He had a lot of complaints. God, you haven't done this and this and this. He even when God responded initially, Habakkuk had criticisms of his plan, saying, God, you can't do that. You can't use the Babylonians. But in chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk to sit down and to take some notes. He says, Look, you write down the vision that I'm going to give you, because people are going to want to read this. And God then proclaims the succession of, of judgments against the people of Babylon. He, he, he makes clear his attitude towards sin and idolatry and what he will do in the end. And he proclaims the value of living by faith. And at that moment, Habakkuk does the same thing that Job does. He just closes his mouth and he stops talking. See, here's the thing about truly seeing God. It always begins with us being humbled. I mean, the manner in which it happens, it can happen a lot of different ways. Right? Sometimes it is a, it's a grand experience. Sometimes uh, there's, there's healing. Sometimes there's a deliverance. Sometimes it's a mountaintop kind of spiritual high where we come into the presence of God and man, we are changed and it's amazing. But sometimes it just happens in the everyday things of life. For me, the, the times when I've been most impacted by God, I would say that I've been really in the presence of God and seen Him for who He is. Uh, it's been on my own, in my room, on my knees, with my Bible. The Spirit of God revealing my sin to me, bringing me to the point of repentance. See, when we see God for who he is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are. And when that happens, our faith grows. Our our conviction grows. But the other thing that happens is is while we are humbled, that's a key thing, being humbled, being willing to allow the Spirit of God to, to open our eyes to the truth of who God is and who we are, the other thing we need to be prepared for is, is to see God as he truly is and not as we imagined him to be. Because there's often a big difference. Uh, Habakkuk goes on from the initial verses speaking about kind of the splendor and glory of God uh, to some truths about God that are sometimes difficult for us to, uh, to accept. Here's verse 5. He says, Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. See, truly seeing God means that we begin to see the depth and the complexity of his, of his true nature. I mean, look at verse 6. I love verse 6. It says, uh, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. The sense there we get is of of God appraising the earth, measuring it in in a moral sense. Uh, The picture that comes to my mind is, um, there's an old show, I don't know if you remember it, it's called um, uh, the Antiques Roadshow. Remember from England where uh, everyone would come, they'd bring all the junk out of their closets and they would uh, come to these appraisers, these antiquarians, and they would, they would take these objects and, you know, tell them, look, this is real, this is not real, this is worth nothing, this is worth, you know, thousands of pounds. Uh, And the thing of it is, everyone in lineup waiting for the uh, appraiser, they didn't know if what they had was good or not. Everyone viewing, we can't tell you, just look at it, I don't know, looks kind of cool, looks old, but under their trained eye, they could look at it and say, oh man, this is, this is a rare piece. That this is this is valuable. Or this is junk. You should get rid of it. See, that's the eye that God has for the earth. He looks and, and he appraises everyone because his brilliant light, his holiness, it does illuminate the earth, but it doesn't just show the, the good things about us. In fact, the, the biggest thing it does is it exposes our sin. It exposes our, our flaws and our weakness. Uh, For us to truly see God, it means that we're going to truly see ourselves. In fact, this is what we see with Job. Here's the verses I read before. Uh, He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and then look at the result. Look at the impact it makes for Job personally. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, if we're going to come to the place of humility, if we're going to be given the spiritual sight to, to really apprehend in some small measure who God is, it means that we're going to need to see ourselves in light of his goodness, in light of his perfection. And that means we are going to be led to the point of of repentance, hopefully to the point of repentance, of seeing our need for mercy, seeing our need for forgiveness. And the beautiful thing about Habakkuk is that he not only sees... uh, that the character of God as judge, he also sees the character of God as, as a forgiver, as gracious, as merciful. In fact, in um, verse two of chapter three, he says, "In wrath, remember mercy," which is a very profound thing to say. It demonstrates very, very clearly that, that he, he knows who God truly is. He acknowledges the fact he is judge over the whole world, but also also he's a merciful savior. It's a beautiful declaration of, of someone who has faith in the God as he really is, not as he wants him to be. And so the question for us, just in light of this first kind of point of how we grow our faith is, um, do we really know God? Do we have a, an accurate vision of who God is? Not, not a version that we've crafted of him, that's more to our liking, but the vision of God as it is revealed in the word of God. Now the best way to figure this out is, is just to ask this question. Are there any verses in the Bible? Like, like any things that are written down in the Bible about God that you find difficult to, uh, to make mesh with your vision of him? Like, like are, there, are there stories about God, verses about God, things that he, that he says that you have trouble fitting into your understanding of God? If that's the case, then, then probably you're not seeing God as he really is. Probably you're, you have a vision of God that you, you wish were true. And the problem with that is that there's always going to be a gap. There's going to be a gap between the God that you imagine, the things that you think he should be doing, and the real God who is really active in your life. That, that gap always breeds doubt and anxiety and misgivings and mistrust, just like in a marriage. A wife who 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 has in her mind the man of her her dreams, and then marries a man who is who's not the man of her dreams. He's he disappoints her. He doesn't do things the way that she imagined he would. And there's always this tension in her mind and her heart because because really she's wanting this this other guy who doesn't exist. See, it's not that God disappoints us, but it is true that if we don't see him for who he is, we are going to have trouble trusting him. Our, Our faith will not grow. Our faith only grows when we see God for who he truly is. That's the first thing. Second thing, our faith grows when we remember what God has done. Uh, The next couple sections here of of Habakkuk's prayer, uh, he describes our salvation as like this giant cosmic battle. And God is this divine warrior who who wades into the battle to to fight on our behalf and to vanquish our enemies. And it's it's very uh, poetic, very figurative, very dramatic language. And so I'm going to read the first section and make a few comments and kind of see what God has in here for us. Here's verse 8. Uh says this, "Was the wrath against the rivers? Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord?" Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Now, the language there very clearly depicts a fierce battle. And you can see kind of the scope and scale of this battle because of the way that the, the natural world is affected. Right? The rivers, the sea, the sun and moon it, it itself, they're all impacted by kind of the, the ferocity of this battle. It makes me think of... Um, of all the super, superhero movies we've been watching in the last few years of Marvel, uh, whenever two super-powered beings collide, it seems to me that they don't often do a lot of damage to each other, but the world around them is always in shambles, right? New York City just destroyed when they're battling the aliens. Uh, when uh, Iron Man and Guardians of the Galaxy were, were fighting Thanos, right? In uh, Infinity War, at the end, Thanos takes like a moon and he throws it at Iron Man and just destroys everything, of course, Iron Man survives. But, but the point is, there's a lot of collateral damage when there's this kind of magnitude of battle going on. And that's, that's the picture we get here. That's what Habakkuk's trying to communicate with us. That's the intensity of how God fights on our behalf. And as he goes on, he kind of narrows the focus even more to look at God himself uh, and depicts uh, his victorious power over his enemies. Look at the next uh, few verses here. Verse 12 says, um, You, God, he speaks in the second person. Now, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Very vivid imagery. In fact, most of his response is this kind of vivid imagery. And and what Habakkuk's doing is he's reminding himself, he's reminding his readers of the many times that God has saved his people. Now, there's sometimes where there's specific references. Like in verse 7, a reference to Cush and to Midian. Uh, that verse 11 with the sun standing still, probably reference to Joshua where God did this amazing miracle and uh, defeated the Amorites. He had the, the sun stand still. There, there's some specific details, but most of the time, most of the time the focus is on God. And, and it seems that Habakkuk's point is, is to bring our uh, attention to the power of God and his willingness to save us. His willingness to do what is necessary to, to wade into the battle so that we are saved. And, and while the language, you know, may seem a bit over the top, may seem kind of grandiose, uh, this is essential for us to have true faith. Because we're not going to trust God until we are absolutely certain that he has both the power to save us and the heart to care for us and, and to do what needs to be done. Um, there's a quote I came across uh, recently, uh, Caleb is studying Alexander the Great in our homeschooling. And, um, and here's a quote that Alexander the Great had, one of the most amazing uh, military rulers in history. Uh, he, said, he said this, he said, I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. And what I take him to mean by that is, is look, the key factor in any battle is the leader is whether that leader is, is so determined that he is going to bring every resource at his disposal for the sole purpose of defeating his enemy. That is, that is a man you should fear. And, and that actually is how Habakkuk is depicting God. He's saying God is going to do absolutely everything necessary so that our enemies will be vanquished. And the amazing thing is that even with all of this grandiose language, it's just a snapshot of the battles that were to come in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, I mean, God does real battle with the enemies of Israel. He rains down fire from heaven. He brings plagues. There's, there's literally blood soaking in the earth of, of the enemy of God's people. But in the New Testament, God goes to battle against some even greater enemies that we have, every one of us. And those enemies are sin and death. And on the cross, on the cross, Jesus does battle. He defeats our enemies, but this time he spills his own blood. It's because of his own sacrifice, his own death, that we have victory over those things which are the true, the true threat in our lives. See, the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's power and his love. And it's something that has been done for every human being on the planet. And the reason that this is so important The reason that Habakkuk would would point back to these battles in the past and why the Bible again and again draws our attention back to the cross is because these are the things that that we doubt most often about God. Most of the time, the struggle in our lives when it comes to our faith is that we doubt his power and we doubt his love. I mean, if you think about the, the situations where we have anxiety, we have worry... Uh, we may think, if someone asks us, you know, what's wrong? What, why you seem down? What's going on? We may think that it's because of the circumstances themselves. And they may be real difficult circumstances. There's lots of them right now. Right? We may be filled with worry about, about jobs, about health, about relationships, about the circumstances of our lives. But, but that is not ever the real issue. The real issue for someone who is uh, seeking to walk a life of faith is is what we think about God in the midst of these difficulties. See, the question that we really need to be asking ourselves is, do we really believe that God loves us and that God has the power to save us? Of course, the answer we're going to give, right, all all the time is, well, yes. Yeah, yeah, of course I believe that. Someone asked us, you know, do you really trust God? Yeah, I I believe he's powerful. I believe he's loving. I know God, in a sense. But the fact that we're still worrying about these things, reveals the fact that we, we don't actually believe. That our answer to that question is, is either no or maybe. Maybe God loves me. Maybe God is going to do something to help me. Maybe if, if, if I do a better job, maybe if I'm a better Christian, maybe if I show my devotion to him, maybe if all sorts of things happen, then maybe he's going to save me, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure. See, Most of the time, we don't really believe that God is going to take care of things. And so because of that, there's an inherent doubt and distrust that filters into our heart and into our mind. And it tears at the fabric of our relationship, tears at the fabric of our faith. Just like that couple at the beginning of of the sermon, I told that 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 wife and her husband, her doubts were tearing apart the fabric of their relationship, even though the husband was, was being faithful. It was the doubts that began to, to tear things apart. See, if we're honest, what we think a lot of the time is God, if you loved me, I mean, if you loved me, you would be doing something to show me your love. If, if you loved me, the things that were going on here, I would see evidence that you're doing something to bring help or healing or some answer to my, to my prayers. If you loved me, I would see you doing something. But, of course, the truth is that he's already done something. In fact, he's, he's done the biggest and best and most dramatic thing that, that any being could do for us. He, he's shown his love and his power through the cross. He, he's ensured that we have hope in life right now and hope in heaven eternal. In fact, he's displayed his power and his love in the greatest beacon of of such things that has ever existed in the universe. And, and that's the cross. And that's what we find in the Bible over and over again. The encouragement to God's people. When it comes to our own love for others, our own faith always comes back to the cross. Here's 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 9-10. to 10. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, that word propitiation means sacrifice. He's saying that the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, that, that should answer all of your questions, all of your doubts about whether God cares about you, but whether God loves you. He's saying, yes, I do. Of course I do. Look at what I've done for you. Look at the hope that I brought into your life, that, that you would now live as a child of God no longer an orphan, no longer a, a sojourner, no longer without a home. You, you, your home is in heaven. Your home is with Jesus. And because of that, any of the circumstances that are, that are going on around you, you, you always have an answer to them. The answer is, I know God loves me. I know he's for me. I need to remember what he's already done and trust him for what is to come. And, and that's, that's the third thing. Secondly, faith grows when we remember what God has done. But then thirdly, faith grows when we trust God for what he will do. And here we get to the last verse again. Back to it. Verse 16. Where Habakkuk says, I I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now you notice uh, Habakkuk's demeanor there when he says these words. It's interesting, right? He says, my body trembles, uh, my lips quiver, my legs tremble beneath me. So why, why that? I mean, we've said this whole time that he's full of faith, right? So why this, uh, he seems to be kind of nervous. Well, the answer is because he knows, he knows the difficulties that are still on the horizon. See, to have faith doesn't mean that you just pretend everything's, everything's fine and that it's not difficult. It is. He, he knows what's coming. He knows the people of God are not going to repent. He knows the Babylonian, Babylonian army is going to invade Judah. He knows the suffering that is to come. And yet, he still says he will wait quietly. So what's the difference there? How, how do you account for that expression of faith in the midst of the, the reality that is around him? Well, well, the only answer is faith faith, that, that now, now he sees God as he truly is. Now he remembers all the things that God has done in the past to save his people, and now he trusts God for what he will do in the future, for the plan that God has laid out, his promise to, to bring judgment on the evildoers, to bring an answer to the evil that exists in Judah, to fulfill his promises. Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait quietly, See, for Habakkuk now, it's no longer a matter of if God will do something. Now it's just a question of when. It's a question of of when will you do it. And that's the difference that faith makes. The shift in our own mind and heart from thinking, God, you know, I I hope you'll do something. I think you might do something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're actually hearing my prayers. I'm not sure if you're actually going to intervene. There's been such turmoil, such hardship. I don't know if you're actually out there. To shift from that to God, I know you're there. I know you're for me. I know you love me. I have evidence of it in my life and in the word and the cross. And so Lord, would you help me to be patient? Help me to be faithful. Help me to wait quietly with full expectation that you will answer. You will unfold your plans for me. You will bring goodness into my life as you have said. But I need to wait. That's the difference of faith. And the challenge, of course, is, is in the waiting. And I thought I would end by telling you a story of, um, of a friend of mine who's been waiting for, for a long time. Um, his name is Hamid. Some of you know him. He's been around the, the church a bit. Uh, I've known him, I don't know, years ago at, at Willingdon. Uh, Hamid has been in a season of waiting. In fact, I've joked with him that he's become an expert on waiting because Hamid got married about three years ago, but he has not yet been able to live in the same country as his wife. Muhammad's uh, from Iran, uh, he came to faith in Christ in Turkey years ago, and uh, about five years ago, he went back to Turkey, uh, he was interested in doing some missionary work there, so he was checking out some of, the, uh, some of the churches there, figuring out what, you know, how God might be leading him, and while he was there, he met uh, a woman named Samira. Uh, Samira also was from Iran, also had, uh, came to, to Turkey, also was a Christian, had a young son named Eli, and they, uh, they hit it off. They went out for a few meals there. He got to know them. He was only there for a few weeks, though, so when he got back, they began a long-distance relationship. After, I think, about a year or so, Hamid finally popped the question. I think he'd known for a while that she was the one, but they had talked about a lot of things, and he said, "Uh, you know, would you be my wife? She accepted, and they got married. Uh, in Turkey. They, we were invited to the wedding, but uh, we had to decline. Uh, but we sent a note. It was, it was exciting. Saw the video. Uh, got married in a Christian church there. And then the process began of bringing Samira Eli uh, back to Canada. Which, of course, uh, you know, we all know is, is a difficult thing. Immigration always takes time. But this has taken a lot of time. First, there was just the regular, you know, difficulties of the application process, but there were, there were errors in the translation of dates that he got uh, from, from the documents from Iran that had to be ironed out. Uh, There's a lot of back and forth with uh, immigration officials. And then finally, the, the word came down, uh, their uh, sort of uh, verdict, and the verdict was uh, no. No, we do not accept her application to come over. In fact, uh, we don't think that this marriage is real. Uh, We think this is sort of a sham marriage. You just want to bring her over. And so then the appeal process began. And Hamid had to do a whole bunch more documentation. He finally had his day in court. I went down with him uh, to an immigration hearing. And like all day, there were questions, questions, questions about your relationship. This meeting, that meeting. Finally, at the end of that day, I had to leave because it was so long. Hamid sent me a text and just said, they said, yes. Samira and Eli are coming. Oh man, I was so excited. They said, it's totally approved. All you need to do is wait for the visa. So they started waiting for the visa. That was in the fall. And of course, uh, in the beginning of this year, what happened was a worldwide pandemic, which meant that all travel stopped, all visas stopped being issued. And Hamid's still waiting. Three years now that he's been waiting and it looks like probably he's gonna have to wait till the end of this year. And, and there've been times when I know it's been very, very tough for him, where like Habakkuk, his, his legs have felt weak, his lip has been trembling. there's been times when he's been so frustrated at the process, frustrated at some of the injustice, of the, the struggle, but I also know that throughout the whole thing, Hamad has been full of faith, and I've asked him on more than one occasion, like, Hamad, how, how are you doing this? How do you make it through this, this process? How do you keep waiting? And his answer is always the same, He says, it's because of Jesus. He says, I know Jesus. I know he loves me. I know he died for me. I know know that he wants good for me. I know that he's at work. And so, what else can I do? He says, I must wait. I must trust him. I must have faith. And I just want to point out here that that's, that's not blind faith that Hamid has, it's not wishful thinking. Hamid knows God. He knows what he's like. He knows what he's done for him in the past. And he knows his promises to him that he will work all things out for good. That doesn't mean that it's going to work out the way that Hamid thought, but, but it means that he can be absolutely sure that there will be good for him in the future and that God loves him. And so because of that, any of the temptations to doubt and, and, and to worry and be anxious, they are met with a real understanding of who God is. And the truth of the matter is that we can have that kind of faith as well. Whatever your situation is, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why right now we may be tempted to doubt and worry, why many of us may be waiting for things we're not sure when they're gonna happen or if. But the power and grace of God revealed in the cross is the answer we need to whether God cares and whether he has the power to help us. I'm gonna end by praying for us that we would, we would take these truths to heart and that it would encourage us, encourage you wherever you are, that God is with you and he is for you. Let me pray. Lord God, I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for this prayer from Habakkuk, Lord. Lord, he went through a season of, of great turmoil and angst and anxiety. Lord, he, you allowed him to speak to you in a sense face to face. And God, he was changed. Lord, I pray the same thing would happen for us. That we might meet you through the person of Jesus. That Jesus, you say, if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. Jesus, I pray that each one who's listening, each one who's watching, Lord, that we would come face to face with you, Jesus. That our our sin would be exposed in the light of your holiness. That that our our heart would be filled with the realities of, of your your true nature your true power your true love that Jesus that we would not go through a day without remembering the extent that you went to to defeat all of our enemies that you laid down your very life and that that would fill us with with confidence and hope even in those times where it seems like just nothing is happening Jesus please help us to trust you as we should help us to to grow in our faith and and to bring our doubts to you and to glorify you even in the midst of difficulty and waiting. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the power that you used on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that we would turn to you again and again, away from sin, away from doubt, away from anxiety, and that we would cling to you by your power and by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.